this, uh, this coming Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, I, I learned something from some of my musical friends, uh, a mashup, I think you call it, where you take a couple of songs and you, you put them together. And so I thought, let's do that in Luke. There's in the next chapter, there's this, there's this fantastic story that Jesus tells and, and who he's telling it to and the name that he, names that he uses. It's a fantastic little story all on its own about um, even if someone were to rise from the dead, they would not believe. And I'm going to take that and we're going to compare it to when, in fact, Jesus has risen from the dead in Luke chapter 24. And he appears and do his own disciples believe it, even though someone, he, has risen from the dead. So we're going to put those two stories together and we're going to ask the question, what would it take for you to believe? What would have to happen for you to believe? And maybe it's already happened. Maybe you can That'll be next Sunday. This Sunday, we're actually in Luke chapter 15 as we are going through the gospel of Luke together. And Luke chapter 15 is God's lost and found. And in in the story, especially the third one, it reminds me, it reminded me of something I heard years ago, I think even before we had kids. I was told that the typical Air Force full bird colonel, if you make it in the Air Force to full bird colonel, that's like one level below a general officer with stars and everything, and and you're somebody, you're important, and yet you've had to devote yourself to your career to get that far. You've you've probably made some trade-offs and sacrifices along the way in order to prioritize the, the uh, career and to advance like that. And, and it's said oftentimes that an Air Force colonel has two sons. One's in the Air Force Academy and the other's in rehab. Now that's not just the Air Force, is it? A lot of careers take that same kind of, of, of commitment and, and focus and devotion and prioritizing or, or disprioritizing and, and I don't know the father. I don't know of a father who somewhere along the way hasn't asked themselves afterwards what could I have done differently? What did I do wrong in the raising of my kids? And, well, probably many things. But you don't really know, did those things make that difference? Is this because of that? You don't know if it would have made any difference at all because the reality is this. Fallen fathers have fallen children. That is the reality. And I don't know of a father that isn't pained in some way by that reality. It's been that way since Genesis, hasn't it? Fallen fathers have fallen children, fallen sons, and one son seeks identity by following the rules. Another seeks identity by flouting them. The Bible has many tales of two brothers, doesn't it? It begins with Cain and Abel. You have Ishmael and Isaac. You have Jacob and Esau. Hey, ladies, don't worry. The, the, the tales of two sisters are thrown in there too. You remember Rachel and Leah, Orpah and Ruth, Mary and Martha. We engage sometimes in a competition against others seeking our own identity and approval, often seeking to climb up by pulling others down. Gossip and slander works that way. I feel better about myself by pointing out the faults of others, criticizing them, or maybe showing off my own fashion sense or pointing out somebody else's lack of it. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. Bob, Bob could use some fashion critique. 
um, just not long ago, I pulled the shirt out I was going to wear, and Julie looked at it, and she said, are you going to wear a sweater with that? <laughs> now, what she was really saying is, please, don't wear that sweater out in the open, okay? Or, 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 no, don't wear that shirt out in the open. Couldn't you wear a sweater with it? Uh, Bob does need some, some, some fashion advice. These ways that we seek approval or to establish our identity by either following rules or by flaunting the rules and by the envious criticism of others, these are the things that easily divide us. And it reminds me of the story that we're going to tip into here. Our text this morning is the tale of two brothers. Two brothers who have forgotten that they are brothers. Each turned his back on the other. It's in Luke chapter 15, if you want to turn there. It's a story of the faithful versus the traitors. Of compliant versus rebellious. Of the seemingly righteous versus the apparently wicked. It's a story of Pharisees and sinners. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it starts it that way. Now the tax collectors and the sinners, they were all drawing near to hear Jesus. He seems to be receiving them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled among themselves, saying, This man, look at him, he receives sinners and he eats with them. Well, the story begins with one happy family. Well, really, it wasn't a happy family although people on the outside might have thought so. The home was well kept. The family farm seems successful enough. One son in particular seems to be dutifully following in his father's footsteps. But the other son nurses a grudge. It's the grudge of being second. You know, there's the heir and there's the spare. Reminds me of, of, of another family, right, that's really royally messed up. Okay? That's a story like this one. Seemingly one son in the academy, one son in rehab. One son in grad school, one on the streets. One building up the family, other, family business, one draining it dry. The only thing these two brothers have in common is that each desperately needed their father's embrace. One of them presumed upon it. The other one seemingly despised it. Let's listen to this tale of two brothers. It begins in Luke chapter 15 in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And a lot has happened along the way so that then one day the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Give me my inheritance now. And so the father divided his property between them. Now, normally, the older son, if there are two sons, the oldest son, even if there are five sons, the oldest son in Israel inheritance receives a double share. So this one with two sons, this is going to be a, a two-thirds and one-third split. So the younger son is going to get one-third of the value of his father's assets, the family farm. Now, you, you can't take acreage on the road. So apparently what happens here is the father pays, pays the younger son off in, in cash. He, he probably sells some of the livestock. He sells some of the, some of the grain and seed reserves, things that the farm needs for the future, breeding stock that they would need for the future that's going to cause continued prosperity. But he sells that off in order to raise the capital 
the also takes probably funds that were set aside for a difficult time, and he, and he gathers that together, and he pays the younger son to give the younger boy what he really wants, precious metals, cold, hard coin. Now, many days later, a story goes on, the younger son gathered up all that he had, which was basically the cash value of his share of the inheritance, and he left. He left. He took a journey, it says, to a far country. Now this in in itself is a complete repudiation of his heritage and his true inheritance as a son of Israel. You see, Israel were a chosen people, chosen by God and placed by God in a specific land for a specific purpose. They are given this place, and each family is given a place within it that God chose for them. God doesn't place them in Israel because Israel's the best land around anywhere. He puts them there because this is the center of three continents. And this is where God is going to make himself known through these people to all the nations of the earth, that all the world may know, may know him and have relationship with him. And yet, in that in that land in that specific place that God had redeemed them out of Egypt and brought them to and placed them within, this land then, the family's land, is an inheritance given to them by God, by his promise. It is only in their unbelief and their rebellion against God that Israel as a people do not continue to enjoy that land, and rather they are exiled out of it to the far country. And in the time of Jesus, the domination under Rome was an extension of that Gentile domination of Israel. Rome was, in the story, Rome is the far country. Rome is that country whose terrible tax collectors collaborated with and served. How the father's heart must have been broken that his son goes to the far country. His son, rather than life with his father and in his inheritance, he's chosen the lifestyle of the unbelieving oppressors. How must, the older, how must his older brother resent his younger brother's self-serving departure and on the way bleeding the family farm dry of the resources that they would need to prosper, just as the tax collectors are doing to Israel for Rome. You see the picture that's being developed here. In the same way the Pharisees resented those Rome collaborating tax collectors. But will the wandering one find fulfillment? Will he find the identity that he's looking for in the far country? There in the far country, he squandered his property in reckless living. Notice it doesn't say his wealth, his property, his inheritance. We think of property, we think of acreage, don't we? And that's what he squandered. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Now, sometimes, can I just say it? Sometimes stupid is supposed to hurt. Okay? Sometimes we are meant to feel the consequences of our own stupid, terrible choices. 
and he is certainly experiencing that. Now, that is not the sum of it, however. There's a lot of tragedy and troubles that befalls that are not as a result of God coming down on you and even trying to get your attention. There, we're going to talk some about this on Friday. There are calamities that occur uh, to broken people in a broken world. So don't be too quick to judge someone else or yourself because calamity has befallen them. But God does intend to get this younger brother's attention here, and that's exactly what happened. He squandered his inheritance. He threw it away. It may have been careless spending on easy credit. As long as the parties kept happening, the friends kept coming. But when there were no more funds, there were no more friends. No one cares for him. No one helps him. For a while, maybe he lives in a tent along the highway. He looks for work. After all, he once knew something about farming. And so, the only job he can get is slopping pigs who eat better than he does. But they weren't much interested in sharing. What's the son of Israel doing slopping the pigs? What has happened? How far he has fallen? Maybe it would give him a chance to realize that this is how he has been acting. Trampling into the mud everything of value that he had been given, pushing and shoving to assert his own way and to feed his own appetites and desires. But there he came to himself. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread while I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants, a lowly farmhand. And he arose and came to his father. But how could he come home? After all that he had done, how could he come home? He trudges along. He's rehearsing this little speech. I'm not worthy. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you, Father. Can I somehow work hard enough, do enough good that you might take me back just as a lowly servant? I know I don't belong. I know I don't deserve anything. While he's still a long way off, his father saw him, verse 20, and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. And kissed him. And the son said to him, he begins his little speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on. And put a ring on his hand and shoes or sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. They begin to celebrate. The father has been waiting. The father has been watching. How many times through the day does he look down the road? Just in the middle of whatever he's doing, he can't help but look and wonder, is there one coming? And one day, one day, one day there is. He sees that form on the road toward the farm, and he'd recognize that walk anywhere. He looks a little worn. The swagger is gone, but this is his boy. 
This is his boy whom he loves and has longed for. He, he, he ran to him. Some people suggest even that he runs to him in order to get there before the elders of the village or the nearby town would get to him first and block his way and send him off lest he bring any more shame upon his father or their town. But the father runs to him. In this culture, fathers don't run to anyone. That would be dishonoring. Everybody else runs to the father. But he runs to him and he embraces him so overjoyed to have him back again. This unexpected reception is an apparent recollection. We've heard or we're supposed to have heard something like this before. It's in Genesis 33 where Jacob, Jacob who will be renamed by God Israel, Jacob having stolen Esau's blessing flees for his life to a far country but finally it's time for him to come home to face the family and on the road home he fears the approach of Esau his brother whom he so greatly wronged. But Esau runs to him, falls on his neck, not in the headlock that we would expect. No, but weeping in joy. Jacob's response is, is to this encounter applies to this story also. Jacob's response to his brother's unexpected mercy and joy at his return. Jacob's, Jacob says, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Do you remember where we're told, forgiving one another even as God in Christ has forgiven you? That one of the best gospel witnesses you can give is your forgiveness of someone. There they too might see the face of God. Before the wanderer can even get his short little speech out, before he can offer how he intends to earn his way home, the father is already calling for the best long and formal robe. Though he comes barefoot as a slave, the father calls for new leather sandals. And though he asks to be merely a servant, he's given a ring, probably with the family signet on it, the seal of his belonging in his father's house. The costume details are needed because we're not watching the movie, we're reading the story. And yet, it seems like we've read something like this before. This is similar to how Pharaoh exalts Joseph. Remember Joseph, he's lifted up out of prison and he's exalted to the Pharaoh's right hand. And what does Pharaoh do? He clothes them in fine linen and he puts his signet ring on his finger. That's what's happening here. It reminds me of Ezekiel 16. Yes, Ezekiel, the, the captivity prophet, the prophet of Israel in Babylon. And there he reminds Israel of how God had received them, perhaps of how God will restore them. I bathed you with water, God says, and I washed off your blood from you, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth, rich garments, and your feet with fine leather, sandals. This is how God, our Father, receives those who come confessing, needing his forgiveness in Jesus. Notice also that while the wandering son had much sin to confess, 
The details need not be anguished over any longer. He doesn't need to, before his his father, tick off the list and catalog everything that he's done. No, for him to just humbly return and confess his need, already the father starts to restore him, to lift him, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. If we conf- it's, it's enough for him to admit his guilt and his sin against God in heaven and against his family. And so we too, if we confess our sin, God is faithful. God is just. He is faithful because this is promise and God is always true to his word. He, this is just because the forgiveness he grants to us has been paid for in full by his son Jesus' death in our place. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even as the Father here restores the Son. So rather than condemnation, the Father throws a celebration. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate, for this my Son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate, but the party is not yet complete. Here we see how in this story, it's the capstone of those three lost and found parables. First, there was the hundred sheep. One of them wanders off. He leaves the 99 to go and to seek and to save the one who is lost. And he brings them back. And when he brings them back, there is great rejoicing when the one lost is brought home. And so will the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents and comes home. And there's a woman who had ten coins, and she loses one of them, and and she searches the whole house under, behind everything until she finally founds it, and then she's got to tell everybody. It's kind of like you. You went to the ATM, and you took out $1,000, ten Benjamins, and then you lost one of them. The next morning, you're looking around, and you're looking through your pockets, and there's nine. But where's the other one? I didn't buy anything yet. Where's the other one? And you search frantically everywhere. And finally, you recover it, and you're so thrilled. you got to tell somebody about it. Well, that's nothing like the joy in heaven over the lost who is found, the guilty who repents and confesses and receives forgiveness from God by faith in Christ. In the same way, the father rejoices at his son who was lost and found, In that same way, our God, our Father, rejoices when we who are dead in trespasses and sins are made alive in Christ by faith, receiving God's forgiveness, His invitation to new life. Having come home in confession, we too are clothed with the rightness of Jesus. That we are made to belong in God's family. That we are sealed into God's family by not merely a piece of jewelry that we could then lose again, but by the very presence of the Spirit of God dwelling within us. We are made heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. You, too, will be the center of heaven's celebration. Think of it. The banquet is all about His joy in you. But not everyone is celebrating. They only begin to celebrate. The party is incomplete at the wandering son's return. One person is conspicuous 
by his absence. One chair at the family table sits empty. It's the elder son. The dutiful son is now sulking outside. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and he drew near to the house, he's out there in the field doing what a good son ought to be doing, right? He's looking after the farm. He's looking after the family business. And he comes in after a hard day's work. And he heard music and dancing. What is all this? He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. What's going on? And the servant said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So that that one calf that is set aside and well fed, either for an important sacrifice or for a wonderful, joyous occasion, the calf is sacrificed in the joy of the son's return. But the elder son was angry. He refused to go in. Why is he angry? Why does he not share his father's joy that his brother, his own flesh and blood, his only sibling, has returned and been restored to the family? His anger now separates him not only from his brother, but also from his father. So the father goes again, now seeking the other missing son. You see, the story is not about one lost son. It's about two. One son has been lost in a far country, and the other son has been lost near at home. And now the father goes out again to seek his other missing son. He came out and entreated him, verse 29, but he answered his father. Catch his tone here. Look. These many years that I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command. I did all the things that you asked, and you never gave me not even one young little goat that I might have a little party with my friends. But when this son of yours, when he who has devoured your property with prostitutes, when he comes, you killed the fatted calf for him. What have you ever done for me, Dad? Rather than joy at the older brother's At the younger brother's return, the older brother seems jealous instead. And it's a scene that actually plays out in many families, doesn't it? The sibling that breaks the rules causes greater heartbreak and worry and anxiety and often is the one seemingly more in need, receives more of the parent's attention. Sometimes it's to the neglect or less attention to the compliant one, the low drama, the low maintenance sibling. And resentment can grow out of that. Maybe it's a sort of righteous resentment over the hurt and pain that the rebellious sibling has caused. But maybe there's also a bit of jealous resentment in there. Maybe maybe there's something of, I've followed the rules, I've kept the faith, I've doubled up because you checked out, and yet you still get all the help and all the attention. It's not fair. This is not equity, and I'm done with it. This was the Pharisees' views of those tax collectors and sinners in their society. This might be your view of certain people in society today. This might be your view of some others in your own family circles, and this kind of family jealousy shows up in our relationship with God. It separates us also from our God and Father because we do not share His joy. You see, one son left home, not knowing his father's wisdom, love, and grace. And the one son stayed home, yet not knowing 
his father's wisdom and love and grace. Some needed to repent of their unrighteousness. Some need to repent of their self-righteousness. In this tale of two brothers, we obviously see the rebellious, self-serving character of the younger son. That stands out. Everybody gets that. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. Although that's really not what it's about. He despises the blessing of his relationship with his father. He wasted seeking approval and identity in a fallen world which will never satisfy. It will never deliver what it promises. It's a world that uses him and then casts him to the curb. We also see the judgmental and self-righteous character of the older brother. He also needs to know his father's mercy. He's forgotten how much he has been blessed, how much the grace has been freely given to him also. He's forgotten how that he too has nothing, not even his own life, that has not been freely and generously given to him by his father. What do we have Paul asked the Corinthians that we did not receive. Hear the father's pleading word to his older boy in verse 31. He said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, the one character we must see in this story is the loving, merciful, self-humbling father. The one who runs to receive his wayward child, embracing and exalting him, restoring him who was dead as a son in the family. Could that be God's response, even to tax collectors and sinners? Could that be true to those around us who have despised God and mocked his son Jesus? Would God, your father, still receive you with the same kind of mercy and love and joy? That's the point of the parable. Yes, he will. He absolutely will. And then we see also how he comes after the judgmental and self-righteous son. The one who also dishonors his father by shunning his celebration. He makes his father plead or beg for him to join the father's joy. He embarrasses the father by his absence from the table. The father urges him to remember how much he has been given. All that I have is yours. Remember, he still has his two-thirds that's left. The other son frittered away the riches of an inheritance, but it doesn't mean he no longer belongs in the family. The farm is now the older brother's, and yet the son, the other son is still his brother. And that's what still needs to be recognized here. He comes after that judgmental and self-righteous son. His father urges him to remember how much he has been given to share his father's love for the lost. That simple and familiar theological statement that is most profound. For God so loved the world. All of them. Yes, even them. That he gave his only one and unique son The very expression of God himself in humanity who was given in death for us so that whoever, anyone, yes, even those who believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life, which is relationship with God, along with us, with God. Does this seem too good to believe? 
Maybe you're here this morning and you've, you, you've heard this church stuff before. You're just not sure about it all. But the idea that though you've been a rebel, though you've gone your own way, though you've determined that it's going to be on my terms, and yet God would still so easily receive you, confessing your sin, your need for his forgiveness, and he would so easily receive you to come home. It sounds too good to be true. You can't quite get a hold of that. Well, don't worry. Church folks, let me just... Church folks have trouble with this too, okay? You see, all of us, all of us have certainly been the younger son. All of us have joined in his rebellion against and his rejection of his father, our God. But many of us have also spent some time as the older son. We also look for our own approval in the judgment of others' sin. We too need to recognize God our Father's great mercy and love which caused Him also to come run after us. When our own pride keeps us out of His joy, again, He comes after us. He brings us also into the joy of our full forgiveness and the forgiveness of others. God urges us to find rest and our identity, not as something we work so hard and obedient at trying to earn God's approval, but as that which God freely gives to us in Jesus. How do you see the wandering son in this parable? Do you see him as someone who deserves the consequences of his sin? Or someone who desperately needs God's mercy? How do you see the older son? Do you see him rightly resentful of his brother's unrighteousness? Or do you see him equally blind in his own self-righteousness? You see, in either case, We need to see the Father. We might expect Him to have stern requirements, perhaps a long probation, to just see what this younger son does next. No. He embraces Him. He seems to forget Himself in His earnest desire to invite each son, whether unrighteous or self-righteous, into His joy. I don't know. I don't know. If you're the wandering one this morning, reckless in your own disobedience and rebellion against God and His ways, maybe needing to confess your sin, or are you the self-righteous one, ungrateful in your obedience? Ungrateful in our obedience? Insisting on what we're entitled to from God, if God's really going to be fair about it. Maybe you wonder... If you could ever come home, or maybe you resent the notion that some kinds of sinners could also so easily come home. Maybe we can think about it this way. The Father who so joyfully would forgive and receive and embrace sinners, so undeserving, also then, so joyfully forgives and receives and embraces you and I. Doesn't that example just tell us all the more how freely we are received and secure in his embrace? And as we receive, 
And having received as it overflows out of us, as we extend his forgiveness to others around us, there we also enter into his joy. Would you pray with me? Father, this any one of us certainly need to see more clearly your willingness to forgive us, receive us, embrace us, love us as your own. Whether we have been lost in a far country, whether we have long gone our own way from you, and yet you would run toward us, easily receive our confession, not even caring the details of where we've been, but so willing to forgive us and bring us home. Lord, there's somebody here this morning that needs that. I don't know who they are, but you do. And Father, I would pray that right now by your Spirit, you'd not give them rest, but you would press them. Lord, you would urge them by your Spirit to come home, to come as they are and receive your forgiveness. And Father, perhaps there are others among us who need to get a clearer, deeper, fuller glimpse of your love for us. That love by which you would also embrace others and that would then flow out of us toward others. Lord, that we would truly enter into the joy of our own salvation in the giving it away to others. Because that's your joy. So Father, would you give us the clarity of our own forgiveness and the courage to extend it to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.